How many of you have been thinking about, hey, Jew? Come on. How many of you have been reading ahead? This is so rich. This book is so rich. This one chapter letter is so rich. And so we're looking forward to it tonight. Let's pray together that the Lord will speak to us. Father, we thank you for your presence here tonight. Thank you that you're here to teach us. And I pray that the very presence of the Spirit of God would visit this house. And you will right now let the great teacher of the church, the Holy Spirit, the illuminator, the quickener, the teacher, open our understanding and teach us the Word of God in Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, teach me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And let's look tonight at part two, fighting for the faith. We are in a fight right now in our country. As I study this book, this little one-chapter letter, I have to think of today and where we are right now in the United States of America where there is a vicious attack against what Jude is going to call the faith once delivered to the saints. Now we saw last time that Jude's letter was aimed at the heresy of Gnosticism. And if you weren't here last week, you can grab the notes, get the CD, and look at the definition we gave of Gnosticism. For time's sake, I'm just going to move on, but you can find it easily in the notes or on the CD. So Jude wrote to counter heresy, which has always been a problem with the church. Now, Jude also showed us that we have been sanctified, secured, and selected in Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Now, after he really, he, he, he addresses his readers, he says, now, the faith is under attack, but I want to secure you in your faith before I really turn my sights on the apostates and the teachers of the false doctrine. So I want you to know that you're secure, and I want you to know you're selected, and I want you to know that you're sanctified, and that He is with you. So I want you to say with me, I'm sanctified, I'm secure, I'm selected. Isn't that good news? And no man is going to pluck you out of His hands. Now, after letting us know what the Lord did for us, He's now going to move on, He's going to address these false teachers and um, make a very passionate defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the sin and the doom of ungodly people. Have you noticed how familiar Jude is with 2 Peter? I mean, have you noticed how much of the Bible, how much of the New Testament letters is focused on dealing with heresy, false teaching, countering it, preserving the genuine doctrines and teachings of the Bible. Have you noticed that? Because here again, just like Peter did, Jude is going to focus on the sin and on the doom of ungodly people. Now, let's look at what he says in verse 3. We're starting there tonight. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary instead to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, if you've got a pen or a pencil, got your Bible with you, I hope you do. Don't come to church without a Bible. I'm smiling, but don't come to church without a Bible. That's your sword. And that's what we're learning here. 
We're learning the Bible. Now, he said, I want you to know that you are contending. I want you to learn how to contend earnestly for the faith. Underline that phrase, contend earnestly for the faith. That's a call on you. It's a call on me. Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, Jude lets us in on the fact that he had originally intended to write about our common salvation. In other words, he's telling us in verse 3, I started out to write on one thing, but my mind got changed. I was going to write to you about our common salvation, but a grave outbreak of apostasy has changed things. That's what he's telling us. The Holy Ghost changed up on him and said, I don't want you to write about that. I want you to write about this. And we're going we're gonna to hit this apostasy head on. Now the phrase, I found it necessary, is really not a strong enough rendering. Here's a better rendering. I was constrained, or I came under a strong compulsion from God. A compelling need for immediate action. I just came under it, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where God will press you in your spirit about something where he will just press you about something. As a preacher and as a teacher and a minister who has preached this summer for 40 years, 40 years I've been preaching this summer. Now, I can tell you there have been times I was so constrained and so pressed to address a certain thing that it will not lift until you do it. It is a compulsion that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's undeniable. I think the Lord can sometimes press you to take care of something in your life. He can press you to deal with something. He can just he can he can follow you around and and in a good way haunt you, press you, constrain you to deal with something. And that's what happened to Jude. He said, I couldn't get away from it. So I had to write about this apostasy instead. So Jude was under the strong constraint of the Holy Spirit to switch gears and exhort the saints to fight for the real faith. Now, the faith, he calls it the faith that has been, what, everybody? Once delivered. The faith that has been once delivered does not refer to a creed or a formula of articles of belief. No. It refers to the substance of the complete New Testament teachings concerning the gospel and the church. When he says the faith, he's not just talking about John 3, 16, the the simple gospel. He's talking about everything that God has given us in his word. That's what I want you fighting for. Because the enemy, listen, if every scripture, all scripture, every word is given by inspiration of God, then don't you know that the devil wants to attack every word that is given by inspiration of God? And don't you know that the devil's forte has always been to attack the Word of God. What did he say to Eve? Right off the bat, the first thing that we ever hear coming out of his mouth, has God said? What was he doing? Attacking the one word Eve had from God. He attacked it. So now, he's referring to the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, the completed canon, That's what he's referring to. He said, I want you to defend it. Jude tells us that this faith has been delivered once and for all. 
It's the sum of the things that we must believe. Everything in that Bible. It is something with which we must not tamper. It is something that never needs to be added to. Let's get our Bibles. I want you to hold them up. And, and I want you to realize what a treasure you have right here. This is 66 books of God-inspired Word. And he says, this is what you're to defend. The faith that is revealed in these pages. The faith once delivered to these saints. From Genesis to Revelation, <clears throat> this is the Word of God we are to watch over and defend. And he said, don't ever add to it and don't ever subtract from it. Look at what uh, Revelations warns. I solemnly declare to everybody, writes John, <clears throat> who hears the words of prophecy written in this book. I don't believe he's just talking about Revelations. He's talking about this book. Okay? If anybody adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. Woe! And if anybody removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, this is a book of prophecy right here. It's a book of prophecy. Okay? God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. Oh! Uh-oh. That's powerful. In other words, to put it in Texas terminology, don't mess with the Bible. Don't mess with the Word of God. Teach it. Rightly divide it. Enjoy it. Love it. Cleave to it. But don't mess with it. This is why we can safely and categorically reject any attempt to add to that once-for-all body of belief that is found in here. As, for instance, the heretical Book of Mormon. And I'm going to be real bold tonight, just tell you, just one example is the Mormons, but it's certainly not the only example. But the Book of Mormon is just plain heresy. And if you're listening by radio or you're in here and you're somehow connected to Mormonism, I love you, I do, but you need to get out. Because here's what happened. The Mormons try to pass their book off as, quote, another testament of Jesus Christ. It is nothing of the kind. It is part fiction, it's part forgery, and it's total delusion. Just one example. There's a lot of them out there in our day. The faith, once delivered to the saints, did not need gradual additions over the centuries in order to perfect it. Once Revelations was done and the canon was completed, then God says, there you go, you've got the Bible, don't mess with it. It is what it is. It doesn't need things added to it as the centuries go by. Nor does anything in it need to be subtracted, which theological liberals love to do. And it's happening all the time. Cults love adding to the Word of God. Liberals love subtracting from the Word of God. Liberals see the chief doctrines of Christianity as repulsive and absurd, and they want to discard them in favor of humanism, psychology, and a lethal mixture of other religious philosophies. So we hear things like this. Well, it doesn't really matter how you get to heaven or how you get to God. As long as God sees your heart, as long as you are sincere, you'll find Him. 
Because God recognizes all people, and God will not judge you based on beliefs. He loves you, and He has saved you. And it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And so they hate the doctrine or the teaching that says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man's going to get to the Father but through me. They don't like that. Liberals don't like Liberals are abhorred at that. They want that removed. They want it subtracted. They call that narrow. They call that ignorant. They call it right-wing extremism. They call it fundamentalism. They have lots of adjectives by which to describe it and with which to persecute us. But the bottom line is, is that it is a narrow way. And it is a one way. We used to say one way in the Jesus movement. We always walked around going one way, one way sign. There's one way to heaven. And then all of a sudden here comes this wave of theological liberalism. No, 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 no. There's many ways, many ways. No, there's not. No, there's not. Not if you're going to quote Jesus Christ. Just quote Jesus Christ and you'll find. This is true of the latest outbreak of heresy that teaches the whole world was saved by the death of Christ on the cross whether one believes it or not. Did you catch what I just read? Did you catch what I just said? Brand new heresy out there now. Well, it's not new. It's just come via another person in another garb. It's an old heresy redressed in new clothing, but it's the same thing. Universalism, that we were all saved when Jesus died on the cross and he doesn't discriminate against any religious belief, that we are all saved. As a matter of fact, repentance is not needed. According to this universalism, confession of Christ is, is not needed either. Hell is not forever, and God's love is going to win in the end, no matter what one's belief or lifestyle is. And we're not to judge anybody, because he doesn't judge anybody, because that's not what love does. I don't know about you, but love whacked my behind when I was little. What about you? Love sent me to my room without a meal. Love introduced me to the belt. Love made sure that when I did something wrong, I knew I did something wrong. That's what love did for me. This sloppy agape going around out there right now is not love. It is enabling sin and the destruction of people's lives in the name of love. But it's false love. But this, this new universalism, if you believe it, and it's out there now in a big way in a new book, it null and voids the core of New Testament teaching and renders turning to Jesus totally unnecessary. You don't have to worry about it according to them because Christ's blood covered you no matter what. Whether you know it or not, it covered you and there is no forever hell. Now that's just one thing floating around out there now. So there's a new heresy attacking what? It's attacking the Word of God in this prophecy, in the Bible. Okay? No wonder Paul warned in Colossians 2.8, one of my favorite verses, he said, don't let anybody capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from 
Christ. For in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and He has become for us all of the wisdom of God. You want wisdom? It's in Him. You want knowledge? It's in Jesus. You want understanding of life and the universe and the way that God put all this together? It's found in Jesus Christ. Do you need light for your path? It's found in Him. Do you need counsel over your marriage? It's found in Him. Do you need direction for your... It's found in Jesus. He is... Listen, He's the greatest philosopher that ever lived. His teachings are all you need. Now, in a nutshell, we've got a perfect, completed Bible comprised of 66 books. And it is God-breathed and is profitable for godly living. Jude says, I want you to earnestly contend for the faith contained in its pages. Why? Because the dogs of war have been unleashed against the gospel of Christ and compromise is out of the question. Now, let me ask you a million-dollar question tonight, church. Is this under attack in our day? John 3.16, God so loved the world He gave His only Son. Whoever believes on Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That Jesus is the only way that He died for our sins, that we even have sin. Is that under attack? Of course it is. That there is no other route to Him, no other way to Him, to, to God that is but through Him. Is that under attack? You better believe that it is. He says you're going to have to fight for it. Now the expression earnestly contend occurs only here in all of Scripture. And it means to contend about an issue as a combatant. I believe this is one of the callings on our church. I'm mad about three times a day. I'm being honest with you. I, I, I probably shouldn't. I, I read a lot of, I, I go to news sites and I read news sites. And I, I'm mad. I'm, I'm really, I, I like to think righteously angry about three times a day. Because I see constantly the Scriptures and our faith under attack, Christ under attack. I see constantly the, the, the whole message of the Christian church under attack, being ridiculed and mocked and marginalized and twisted and misrepresented. And it just makes me want to get on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNBC, MSNBC, MSLSD, whatever the rest of them are. And I want to say, wait a minute. Listen to me. God so loved the world, that means you. He gave His only begotten Son just one, just one time, that whoever believes on Him would not perish. If you don't, you will perish. But have everlasting life. There is an everlasting and there is an everlasting life. And you better take care of everlasting while you can. I wish I could say it because it's under such attack. But watch, watch this. We can do a lot of damage right here at Turning Point. We can get on more radio stations. We can get on TV. We can get on the computer. We can get on the Internet. We can do a lot of damage. we got a lot of things on the back burner you don't know anything about, but you will, because we're going to go out there with the sword of the Spirit in one hand, the shield of faith in the other, and we are going to let it go that Jesus Christ is the only way. And that He really does love you, and He... He doesn't want to make a freak out of you. He takes freaks and turns them into people. But we are to contend like a soldier on a battlefield. For what? For the truth that is found in this Word. 
The word earnestly is added to convey the intensity of the verb contend. He doesn't just say contend for the faith. He said do it earnestly. When the great truths of Christianity are attacked, it is criminal for the church to sit on the sidelines doing nothing. Bottom line is, if you don't fight back, you will lose your liberties. You will lose what you've got right now if you don't fight back. Because the other side is fighting with all of their might, with blood, sweat, and tears, to stomp out your voice and to stomp out your faith and to take churches off the horizon and to secularize this culture. So we either fight back or we lose. Now next, Jude describes the men and the method of those teaching the heresy. So let me tell you about these guys. Look what he says. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness or lasciviousness, the King James says, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. First, we're presented with creepers. Or we could say we're presented with creeps. <laughs> because creeps creep, right? Creeping things creep. He says these men, they crept in under the radar. They crept in unnoticed. The phrase means to slip in secretly or to insinuate oneself by stealth. That's how these guys got in. Got into the church, the blood-bought church, the real church. Now these apostates were and are very good at coming into the church stealthily under the radar. This person who came out with this latest book, um, uh, Touting Universalism, has a 7,000-member church. And my heart breaks for those people, seriously. A lot of young people in that church, 7,000 of them. And he's out saying there's no hell, no eternal hell, no eternal judgment. That's not what God meant. Hell is what you make of this life and all of this gut rot. And yet there's 7,000 people and the book flying off the shelves. And how did, how did this person get in? Under the radar. Has a big church calls itself Christian. And I'm not saying it's not Christian, but I'm saying this turn of events puts them outside orthodoxy, outside what the Bible teaches. Uh, they're always likable. The devil's not going to pick somebody that's repulsive. They know how to charm. They were and are today secret assassins of sound doctrine, professional hitmen sent by Satan to undermine and destroy the church. They might hold degrees in theology. They might not. They are usually charismatic and persuasive. They have strong personalities, winning smiles. They're good at oratory, skillful in shading words with different meanings. Here's what they do. They use the church's vocabulary and seem to be saying what we say, but they have redefined the terms. They redefine words and they use them to mean something the church has never taught them to mean. Again, the latest teacher of universal, uh, universalism, everybody is saved is what they're saying, admits there is a hell, but it, like I told you a moment ago, they redefine hell as the misery we create for ourselves on this earth by rejecting God's love. And that's what they say 
hell is. What have they done? They took a word the church has always used, hell. Jesus used it, hell. You know, Jesus was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Well, that went over big. No, it wasn't Pastor Jeff. He was a, he was love. Oh, you haven't read my gospel. He called them tombstones. He called it, called them hypocrites. He called them whited sepulchers. He called them full of dead men's bones. I mean, he said, how are you going to escape the fires of hell? Jesus was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He would tell you just like it was. But no, here's this person going, no, 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 no. He didn't mean that. And they're changing the definitions. There's no eternal hell for the lost, they say. They, the teacher of this, just can't imagine God doing such a thing. Well, last time I checked, God didn't ask me what I thought of his word. Matter of fact, he didn't tell me to judge the word. He said to let the word judge me. Isn't that what he said? Unfortunately, false teachers like this one infiltrate both church and seminary. Takes them a while, takes them about a generation or two, but ultimately they seize control of decision making and of curriculum, which is where you really get into trouble. Because then you start churning out preachers from seminaries who don't even believe it's the Word of God anymore. And you fill the pulpits with hot air, not anointing. And Jude calls them ungodly men, these teachers. This does not simply mean irreligious when he says ungodly. It means they deliberately do things that God has forbidden. That's what ungodly means. And he is also, Jude says, unholy. He's ungodly. He's unholy. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Well, that's a big word, isn't it? Here's what it means. They pervert the doctrine of the grace of God and actually use it as a license to sin. Here's how they do it. They say, if I'm covered by grace, then I can live however I wish. Grace will cover it. If, if God's grace is covering my sin and I have come to him by grace and not by my own works, then I can live however I want to and grace will just cover it. Call that greasy grace. <laughs> Sloppy agape greasy grace. The word lasciviousness means lack of moderation, absence of restraint. It is the word used to describe the lifestyle of the people of Sodom. They were lascivious. In other words, the heresy of the apostates leads to a lifestyle of abandon to the lower nature. Such a lifestyle is an open denial of Jesus Christ. See, the way you live always betrays what you really believe. Your theology will dictate your lifestyle. And so they, if they want to live immoral, an immoral lifestyle, they've got to find a theology that will enable them to do it. So they say, well, greasy grace. I'm under grace. I'm saved by grace. So I can live however I want and grace will cover me. And it's heresy. It's not true at all. Now, they're doomed, says Jude. They're doomed. He says they long ago were marked out for this condemnation. So they're doomed. Eventually, God will bring them under judgment, and it will be a terrible judgment. I tell you, I would be so afraid, so afraid to misrepresent any of the major teachings of Scripture and lead millions of people astray from it. Oh, my. 
Oh my, what a frightening thing to do that and then go into eternity and face God when millions have believed a false teaching and have maybe been kept from salvation because of what I said. Man, I'll tell you, I'd rather just go home today than do that. They're doomed. Now Jude next comes to grips with the apostasy that was threatening the church in his day and that will overwhelm the church in the last days. Now he's going to draw some parallels. He's going to give us three illustrations. We're going to uh, deal with one of them tonight. He, He illustrates with three Old Testament incidents. Now watch this carefully. He draws first from the pilgrim age, tracing the history of Israel as God's pilgrim people when they were in the wilderness. They were on a pilgrimage. They were pilgrimage going from Egypt to the promised land. Second, he draws an illustration from the primeval age, going back to the days of Noah and the invasion of this planet by fallen angels. We're going to look at that next week. And finally, Jude draws an illustration from the present age. He foresees prophetically the decadence of the end times. Now, keeping in mind Jude's observation that false teachers had snuck in through the back door and infiltrated the church, he now draws an illustration from the pilgrim age of subtle imitation, meaning, remember Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares? And he said the tares grew up right next to the wheat. You know what the thing is about tares and wheat? Until tares are fully mature, full grown, they look exactly like wheat. Exactly. You can't tell them apart. Now Jude just said, you had people sneak in, they were going to your love feasts, they were hobnobbing with you, supposedly fellowshipping with you, but they were tares. They weren't real. They were false. They weren't children of God. They were apostates. They didn't have true teaching, true doctrine. They didn't walk with Jesus like you. Tares among the wheat. Now Jude's going to take us back to Israel and show us another example of this kind of thing. Tares among the wheat. Two kinds of people came out of Egypt. First, there were those who were soundly saved. Soundly saved people came out of Egypt. Look what he says in verse 5. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people, what did he do to the people? When did he do this? In Egypt. So notice, he's not just talking about their physical deliverance. He's saying he saved them. Now, saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now Jude begins with those who were genuinely saved. How did they get saved in Egypt? Do you remember? Well, God said, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to slay that lamb. I want you to put the blood above the door and on the sides of the door. And then I want you to put some of the blood in a basin on the sort of the front porch. And when the death angel passes over, he's not going to bring judgment on your house. And they were set free by Pharaoh when the death angel moved across Egypt and the firstborn of every Egyptian died. Pharaoh said, get out of here. That's it. I can't take anymore, and they were delivered. They were saved by putting faith in the blood. 
God was teaching us way back then, I'm going to save you by blood. You're going to be saved by blood. So he put them under the blood, he brought them through the water, and he gathered them around his table. Now they were just like you and I in a physical sense. Spiritually, we were the same as what we're about to read. They had been born in slavery, so were we. We were slaves to sin and the devil. They were born under the sentence of death, so were we. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. They were under the power of Pharaoh. We were under the power of Satan. And they were saved. They weren't saved by the miracles that Moses performed against Egypt. All the frogs and lice and all those things, the water turning to blood, that's not what saved them. What saved them is when they put faith in the... That's what saved them. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. It was the blood on the doorpost and the lintel and blood in the basin on the doorstep that saved them when the avenging angel spread his wings over the land. Then, once they were saved, they were separated. Let me tell you the truth about salvation. If you've genuinely been saved, you are being separated. God doesn't save you without separating you. He separates you from the things of this world. He separates you from a sinful lifestyle. He separates you from being, listen, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted, undefiled, unstained by the world. You can't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and not have promptings to separate yourself from this world. They were separated. God brought them through the Red Sea. They were all, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 too, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were fed with bread from heaven, the original angel's food cake. As Paul puts it, and they were made to drink of water from the rock. Don't we do the same? Here's the rock. Hit it, and water comes out. This Bible is the rock. Open it up and strike it with your faith, and water comes gushing out to feed your soul. That's why I can't wait. My favorite time of day is in the morning. I get out there on the patio if the weather permits. I open up this Bible, and I strike that rock. And the water starts flowing, and I start drinking, and I don't close it until I am full. Then I go out and tackle the devil in the world. Now, they were fed with bread from heaven. Here's the bread and water. Water's here as well. God came down and pitched his tent among them. He dwelled with them. The entire sacrificial system, the laws, the ordinances, the feasts, and the fasts were all part of their spiritual education. For them, it was picture book teaching for a kindergarten age, the children of Israel crossing the wilderness. But the truth of the coming new covenant under Christ was all there in picture, type, shadow, symbol, and ritual. It was all there pointing down the road to the arrival of Messiah. In short, there were those that were soundly saved and separated unto God when they came out of Egypt. As we by faith look back to Calvary, the children of Israel, though it was hazy, though it was vague, and though it was limited, looked forward by faith to Calvary. The Old Testament looked toward Calvary. The New Testament looks back on Calvary. Now, but at the same time, guess what? 
There were those who were supposedly saved, but they weren't. They were terrors. You know that Billy Graham said the greatest harvest field in the world is the church? Did you know he said that? The Lord, he says in verse 5, Jude, the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed who? Everybody preach it to me. Who did he destroy? Those who did not believe. So you had two kinds of people coming out of Egypt. Those who had been saved by the blood and those who did not believe. Among the genuinely saved were what the Holy Spirit calls, quote, a mixed multitude. Those who did not believe. Let's read one verse. Uh, Moses writes about them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He identifies the terrors among the wheat. He says in Exodus 12, verse 38, a mixed multitude. Was he talking about races? No, because they were Jewish. He's talking about faith. A mixed multitude went up with them, Israel also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So when they were delivered out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, there were those that had faith and that were saved, and there were those who were sort of freeloaders. They were squatters. They were those who did not believe. But they saw God delivering these people, and they said, man, I'm getting on this bandwagon, and they latched on. But they weren't saved. They wanted the blessing that God had given His people, but they didn't want the blesser. Now, those were the people that caused most of the trouble. They criticized. They complained. They murmured. They accused. They attacked Moses. They sowed unbelief in the camp. They were discord sowers and unbelief growers. And they were lethal to God's people. And they still are today. That's why you better watch who you run with. Don't run with people that are always saying, are you sure about this Christian thing? Are you, you really supposed to be this zealous? Can't we skip church sometimes? Let's go do something else. Do you have to have this God stuff 24 hours a day? Let's go watch out. Because the devil's greatest tactic with you and I is put a terror right next to us and bond us to them emotionally. The mixed multitude had joined the ranks of Israel after the overthrow of Pharaoh. They were unbelievers who knew nothing about redemption by the blood of the Passover lamb. They were worldly, carnal, rebellious, and they were self-willed. God's faithful dealings with His own was a part of everyday life. But the mixed multitude did not recognize God's dealings at all. When the mixed multitude heard about the giants of Canaan, what did they cry out? Would to God that we had died in the land of Egypt. That was the mixed multitude talking. Or would God we had died in this wilderness. And then they finally crowned all their other sins by refusing at Kadesh Barnea to enter the promised land. They said, we won't do it. Their negative unbelief infected and brought judgment on an entire generation. 20 years old and upward. Only Joshua and Caleb escaped to enter Canaan. The rest of them died in the wilderness because of the voices of the mixed multitude. The supposedly saved but actually apostates, what happened to them? They perished eternally. The backsliders who had been genuinely saved by the blood of the Lamb but listened to the mixed multitude and were carried down by them perished physically 
and their calling was short-circuited. Now, I'm going to tell you something truthful tonight. We're studying the Word of God. Let's look at what this tells us. For the apostate in all ages, the solemn lesson in what we've gone over in Jude tonight is one of sure and certain judgment to come. If you go into apostasy, if you teach apostasy, you lead people away from Christ, and you go and you live according to your lower nature, and like these people pointed out by Jude, judgment is going to come as surely as you're sitting in that chair tonight. God will judge it. At any moment, the unseen line might be crossed. But for the backsliders, the solemn lesson is it's possible to have a saved soul, but a lost life. Now, I know that's heavy, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I've been around a while. I've seen a lot. Like I said, I've been preaching 40 years this summer. I've seen greatly gifted people. I've seen people who were full of the zeal of the Lord, witness to everything that moved, who had a calling, who had a gift, who loved the Lord, who were very effective, who were total Jesus people, but I've seen them. I've seen them walk away and begin to walk in the flesh. And you know what happens to them? Their soul is saved by the blood, but they lose their life, that is their destiny. They short-circuit God's call on their life. I've seen them come to nothing. I've seen them lose everything. Now, I'm only saying this to tell you, don't dabble with sin. Now, we all sin. We all do. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. I understand that. I'm talking about don't wake up and say one day, well, you know what? I'm tired of the church stuff, tired of the God stuff, tired of the Bible stuff, tired of the prayer stuff. I'm going to run around with people that aren't, aren't like all those church people, and I'm going to get out there and uh, like the prodigal. I'm going to go find out what's out there and, 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 and just get a little taste of what the world has. You may end up in a trap that, that only God can get you out of, and hopefully he will get you out. But you can short-circuit your calling. You can, you can abort what God had for you. And I don't want to see that happen to anybody here. These people, it wasn't God's will for their children to be watching them, saying, is he dead yet? Is she dead yet? Because we can't cross over until mom and dad's generation are dead. That's exactly what happened. The whole generation died staring over the Jordan at what God meant for them to have. And they died. Within an arrow's shot of it. And their children went over and took it. Ain't nobody getting what God's got for me. Right? I'm going to get what God, life's too short. So I'm encouraging you tonight with a warning. This is what Jude is, is telling us. Walk with God. Be true to the Lord. Uh, trust His Word. Don't give up on Him. He hadn't given up on you. Walk with Him with all of your heart. Seek Him and don't walk away because your breakthrough is coming and God is going to show Himself mighty on your behalf. And I know that. <clears throat> 
So let's stand together, can we? And look at next week. Close encounters of the demonic kind. And we're going to look at how the devil invaded history and how the Lord defeated that. It's powerful stuff. Don't miss it. Lord, we just thank you tonight. That, Lord, your word is true. And, Lord, we just thank you for these warnings from Jude. The call on our life to stand for the truth and not back down. To fight for the faith that was delivered to the saints. To cleave hard to John 3.16, the blood, the cross, heaven, hell, the Holy Spirit, eternity. Help us to be, Lord, a salty church, an effective church, a soul-winning church. And, Lord, we lift up this Sunday. There's going to be so many people here, Lord, who don't know you, who don't walk with you, who, for whom these things are strange and unknown. Lord, we pray that there will be a spirit of salvation that falls on this house, a spirit of resurrection from the dead, a spirit, Lord, that uh, with your anointing, breaking the yoke, snapping the chains, undoing the fetters, opening the prison doors, and letting them go free. Let there be such an anointing, Lord, that the sinner, that those that are far from you, as we used to be far from you, are so heavily convicted they can't leave without getting it right. We thank you, Lord, for the warnings of God that we would walk with you and make the most of our brief time on this planet. Now I want you to take a minute before we dismiss and just say, Lord, and name somebody's name who you're going to invite. Remember, you're contagious. Somebody's going to come here this Sunday because of you. Let's name a name, a family member, a co-worker. Name them and say, Lord, may this person have their eyes opened this Sunday. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing before we go. Can you lead us high?